Well, it's that time of year again for pumpkin spice everything. Some of you are very passionate about how how many of you are pumpkin spice people? How many of you are by sheer principle refuse to touch anything pumpkin spice? Okay, thank you. Thank you my people. Those are my people. I think it all tastes like an orange crayon in in my opinion. Don't get I don't get behind it. Personally, I'm a big fan of the pumpkin roll. I don't think there, there exists a better uh, treat item in the fall uh, than the pumpkin roll. It's the cream cheese icing that gets me, you know, if anybody's thinking of gifts this time of year. Uh, but it's also the time of year that the carrot people come crawling out of whatever dark recesses they exist in. And they start trying to fool everybody with what looks like delicious pumpkin-flavored treats, only to find out it's carrot, and it tastes like dirt and medicine together. I remember once as a kid being out with my grandmother, and they had treats in a glass display case, and I picked one that to me looked like I'd never had pumpkin cake. And I thought, that's going to be delicious. It looks just like a pumpkin roll, a little lighter, but looks like it's got that cream cheese icing on top. And guess what? It was carrot cake. And my dessert time was ruined. And I remember thinking, what maniac decided that carrots belonged in a dessert? That's a vegetable. Those don't belong in desserts. There was another time... Similar story, similar glass display case. Thought I was ordering one of my favorite desserts, tapioca pudding. Only to find out it was a disgusting imposter. What do you think it was? Rice pudding. Again, who puts rice in a dessert? It's disgusting. I See all you healthy food people, you can dress your dishes up to look like things that actually taste good. But it only takes one little taste to know the difference. Nobody's ever taken a bite of rice pudding and thought, that's good tapioca pudding. You immediately, not only are you hit with, in my opinion, a pretty gross texture problem, but uh, I like the feeling of the fish eyes of tapioca pudding, that much better texture. This morning we're going to be discussing 1 John chapter 2. A lot of what John covers in this chapter is about living a life which is genuinely that of a believer. That's a lot of what chapter 2 is about. It's not enough just to look like a Christian. And as we'll see, John makes it very clear. There are certain aspects which will always be true of a believer, of somebody who is in relationship with Jesus. And there are certain aspects which cannot coexist with a regenerated heart, with somebody who does know Jesus. As we, dis- as we discuss chapter 2 this morning, I want you to ask yourself, am I delicious pumpkin pie or detestable carrot cake? All right. Am I tasty tapioca or revolting rice pudding? Uh, and I, I would apologize if I offend you if that's one of your favorite desserts, but I don't care. Uh, they're gross. We'll, we'll, we'll just call that, uh, that, that's my stepping on the toes for this morning, all right? Uh, but seriously, I want you to ask yourself, am I the genuine article? Do I resonate with the truths of chapter 2 in First John? Or 
is this more of an idealistic idea? Is this what I strive toward but very rarely actually hit the mark of? Uh, as, we, as you can see from our graphic, this entire series is about truth and love together. It's not just enough to know truth, but living it out through the love of God. That's when it comes together. Uh, having head knowledge does nothing for us if it doesn't translate into the way we live our life. So let's jump in. First John chapter 2. Verse 1 says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Here we have John giving his purpose uh, behind writing this letter. As you, if you were here last week, you heard us talk about, uh, I think it's really important before you read any book of the Bible that you go back, you understand who wrote it, what the purpose was, what the occasion was, when it was written, a couple of these basic facts before we dive into a book. And John actually lists three different times his purpose behind writing this letter. Uh, one, of him, one of his purposes is to steer his readers, his audience, who he wrote this letter to, from sin. Uh, John knows that people will still sin. He's not under the illusion that because of his fantastic letter that the people will no longer sin. Um, but he points to Jesus as our advocate. Verse 2 says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, I know you all know exactly what the word propitiation means. You probably used it at breakfast this morning. Uh, it's part of our common language, right? Yeah. Uh, I think in the context, we have a basic idea or understanding of what the word propitiation means, um, but let me define it for us anyhow. What it, the definition of propitiation is the means of appeasing wrath and gaining the goodwill of an offended person. So that's what propitiation, the means of appeasing wrath and gaining the goodwill of an offending, offended person. So when we sinned, when we entered into sin, we offended God. We uh, caused a problem between us. Started with Adam and Eve, and every single human being after, except for Jesus Christ, has done this exact thing. They've offended God. They've, they've brought on wrath from God because of their sin, because God is holy. He is righteous. He and sin cannot coexist. And so when we engage sin, when we bring it into our life, there becomes a problem, uh, a disconnect between us and God. Propitiation is the act of appeasing that, of, of dealing with that problem, uh, and there had to be payment made. So Jesus appeased the wrath of God against sin by taking our sin on himself. That's the entire purpose in the Jewish culture of sacrifices was putting sin on an animal, and that animal became the propitiation of sin for them. It, it appeased the, the need, the necessity for death. That's what sin brings. Sin brings death. And so an animal had to die. But this was not a one-time-for-all thing with animals. It had to happen periodically. A lot of times it was a once-a-year thing, or it would be throughout the year they would constantly be having to offer sacrifices. Jesus became the once-for-all propitiation for our sin. Verse 3, it says, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, this isn't how we earn salvation. This, this verse is not saying, oh, and by this we know that we have come to know him because we've earned our salvation by keeping his commandments. That's the exact opposite of the gospel that uh, Jesus uh, 
proclaimed. It was a gospel of belief, a gospel of faith, and not of works. We don't have right standing with God because, well, we do a lot of stuff. We go to church, we give a lot of money. Listen, it doesn't matter if you put two cents or $2,000 in the offering plate this morning. You're no closer to salvation. It's not about giving. It's not about any of that. And yet, we, we know that. But how many of us live a life where we're constantly trying to earn our salvation, to, you know, to, to pay it back, to, to, in a way, make it feel like we've earned it somehow? And, and I think we know that. We can, we can get a hold of that idea and realize it's there by when we do sin, do we feel less worthy of God's love? I think that maybe is the better testing ground for that. When we know that we've blown it, when we've done something we knew was against God, whether we blew up, we got angry at somebody, we did something, we act rudely, we, we just missed it. Do we feel less worthy of God's love? If so, there's probably some aspect to our life where we're trying to earn His love, trying to earn His approval through the way we live. And, and that's the, one of the beautiful things about salvation is we get to live a life not to earn anything, but out of gratitude. That's where it comes from. If, if I've used this analogy before, but if every time I did something for my wife, she thought I was trying to earn something, she thought I was trying to... Uh, to accomplish something with every gift, with every encouraging word, with anything I did. If, if she always felt like there was an agenda, do you think she'd appreciate that very much? Probably not. So I think it is with God that He doesn't want us to do things just to get things from Him. He wants us to do it because we love Him out of the overflow of love we have received from him. Now, if I respond to my wife's love out of, uh, because she loves me, and, I, and so I reciprocate that through different actions or words or gifts or whatever, to me, uh, how much better that is. Not to earn something, but simply because I am loved. I respond from that. So this isn't how we earn salvation. This is the evidence of a life which has been transformed and now belongs to Christ. In a similar way, if I said I love my wife and I literally do nothing for her, I don't say it to her, I don't do anything that communicates love, if I spend my time, if I have free time, I always spend it away from her, I do everything I can to not be in her presence, I think anybody would look at that and go, ah, I know you say you love your wife, but I'm not really sure if you do because there's no evidence there. Now, if I just showed up and sat next to my wife, that wouldn't mean I loved her. That wouldn't prove that. It wouldn't earn love. The same way that when we do things for God, it doesn't earn anything. But when we are His, when we have felt the love of the Father, we respond to it by wanting, desiring to obey Him. This says we will obey His commandments, not because we have to in order to go to heaven, but because it becomes our desire to. And Paul covers that in Romans 7 and 8. The whole conversation is about him acknowledging how much he wants to live for God. He messes it up all the time. He acknowledges that. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. But he still wants to. It's not because he wants to fit in. It's not because he wants to make it look good on Sunday. It's not because he wants to get the approval of his parents, but because in his innermost being, in his, his true heart's desire, he wants to honor God. And that's the life of every believer. There are some truths which are just true. You might say, well, maybe my relationship with God just isn't great. If you don't have a desire 
to honor him with your life, you don't have a relationship with him. It's an automatic pull, an automatic draw. That's what should be in our life as a believer. If you can live without any acknowledgement, without any desire to please him, to honor him, if every time you do something, it's based on results, on, well, uh, I gotta do this because it won't look good to my church family or people will think I'm a bad person, or that's not love. That's result-based. So do you have that inside in your heart desire to honor God. When you wake up, when you go to sleep, when you live your day, is there this thought of, I want to honor God with my life. I want to bring a smile to his face. I want to please him. I want to, I want to honor the sacrifice he made by the life that I live. Or, we talked about this last week, on the flip side, is it a desire to fit in, a desire to, to meld with a group of people? And well, because this is their standard, I want to, I want to do that so I don't get... Uh, looked down upon or that I, that I wouldn't fit in with that group of people. Verse four, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. This is a pretty bold and direct statement from John. There's no if, ands, or buts here. I don't know John. I didn't, never met him, obviously, uh, but it seems like he might have been a little bit of a black and white guy. Uh, it's either you love Jesus and you want him in your life or you don't. There is no flip-flopping middle ground where like, well, on Sunday we really love Jesus and Monday maybe a little bit's left over. Tuesday it's starting to wear off. Wednesday we don't, we don't care. Thursday we don't care. Friday we don't care. Saturday we start feeling a little bit guilty because we know we've got to go to church tomorrow. Like, John doesn't see it that way. It's, it's either we obey his commandments or we don't. We either honor him or we, or we don't. And again, Using the marriage analogy, if you were to view a marriage where the husband or the wife just did absolutely nothing, they did everything against, like now there are certain things I know uh, my wife is not good with, so one of the things I know with her is to use the word stupid. She, she just doesn't like that word. She hates it. Killian knows it's a bad word, uh, and he, if he's watching, he will correct me when I get home, I'm sure, because I just said it. Uh, he will make me know, let me know that I said a bad word. Uh, now, I could just continue to use that word because I don't think it's a curse word. I don't think it's, it's covered under coarse language in the Bible. Uh, I'd be within my rights to use that word all I want. But if I continued to do that, I think you could easily look at me and say, do you actually love your wife? I mean, she's told you that bothers her. It, it, it upsets her. It hurts her to hear that word. It, does, it triggers her. It does things. So why would you keep using that if you say you love her? That's what this is saying. If we say, I know him, we just live however we want to, John just says, clear as day, you're a liar. That's it. And I don't know how John's original audience took this, but man, it's a pointed statement. Either you obey his commandments or you're a liar. When you look at your life, does it display a life lived to obey the commandments of God? If someone were to investigate you without your knowledge, would it show, man, that's a life, they they don't always get it right, they mess up from time to time, but man, that's a life lived to obey the commandments of God. Or rather, would it be moments of scattered adherence to attempt to appear a Christian? Well, when people are looking, I act this way. When they're not, I act this way because this truly is who I am and what I want to do. But when, you know, the light's on, when people are watching, this is how I act because I do want to fit in. 
if we don't have a regular lifestyle of obeying God's commandments, like, uh, I don't know, let me pick a commandment, go and make disciples, that was a pretty pointed commandment. We call it the great commission, not the great suggestion. John says we are liars, and the truth is not in us. I think that would be an interesting measuring point to say, okay, have we obeyed the command to go and make disciples? But let's change that from have we, are we currently obeying the commandment to go and make disciples? See, uh, in my conversation with people, a lot of time when we talk about this, it's like, well, you know, I used to. In the past, I taught a class one time. I did this thing. I did that. But are we obeying his commandments? That's what John is talking about here. He's not saying whoever didn't obey a commandment 20 years ago. He's saying whoever does. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments. So something, and I'm just pulling that one out there because I think it's one of the ones we, we tend to think is a, a more of a suggestion than a commandment. Too often, though, I think when we read a verse like this, uh, verse 4 here, we think uh, we just focus on the things that we're not doing. And that's that uh, we've talked about the difference between a centered set and a bounded set. The bounded set uh, thinking says, I have to do all the things that are written inside of this box to fit in. I have to obey all the rules, and then I fit in this box. And we, we can call that Christianity. As long as I don't smoke, don't drink, don't have sex outside of marriage, as long as I don't curse and do all these things, I can fit in in this group. That's the bounded set thinking. If I obey all the rules, it means I get the title. And that's, in my opinion, the wrong way to think. Uh, the centered set says, there's Jesus, I need to move toward him. It's not about obeying rules, it's not about what I do and don't do, it's about am I walking toward Jesus? When I mess up, it doesn't mean, I, and I, I, I know that if you've ever been on it, anybody ever been on a diet, even a small one, like a little thing, uh, and you mess up, do you ever have that mindset was like, well, today's blown. It makes no sense whatsoever because we all know just because you ate one bad thing, eating another bad thing only takes you further away from your goal. We still go, well, today's shot. How many of you, this week's shot, you just throw the whole week out because you had one bad meal. Uh, that's that bounded set. It's like, well, I'm outside the box. I might as well have all the fun I can while I'm outside before I step back in the box. And we can, view, we can use that same mentality with Christ. Well, I sinned, might as well get a couple more in while I'm out here, and then I'll step back in and obey all the rules. And that's the wrong way to think. That's not what Jesus talked about. It's not what we should do. And it's not the focus of this. We tend to think, well, uh, when I, to say I obey his commandments, it's all about what I'm not doing. Well, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing that. But there are a lot more commandments than just about what not to do. There's a lot of commandments of proactive things like go and make disciples. We can say, well, I'm a good Christian because I don't do all these things. That's not Jesus' message. Jesus says, uh, someone who follows me does these things. Now, yes, of course there are some things that will automatically be true that we don't do, but we shouldn't have to pat ourselves on the back for that. It just basically following. If, if you have your eyes set on Jesus and you're walking toward him, you don't have time for that stuff. But there are a lot of things we should be doing if we are believers. Verse 5, 
But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. What does it mean, whoever keeps his word? Again, I believe John is speaking about what we are supposed to be doing, not keeping away from or abstaining from, but what we're actually doing. As we live out the gospel, as we become the gospel to the places that we go, whether it's our workplaces, our home, uh, wherever we step foot, we become the gospel to people. As we do that, God's love is perfected because it is brought to those who do not know the love of God. That's what this entire series is about, truth and love together. His love is made perfect because it goes from truth to love lived out. That's when the gospel is perfected. See, it's great. Uh, a lot of churches have Bibles in them, and, and they, they talk about the Word of God, and, and a lot of people know the Word of God, but it that doesn't become perfected until that transforms the way they live. And when we begin to live out the gospel, see, God's love is clear. I mean, anybody, whether they've never heard the name of Jesus or not, can look up into the sky, and they see God's love. It's displayed in every blade of grass. And at the night, when you look at the in, enormous universe that exists out there, it's all because of his love. See, I'm a little bit of a nerd when it comes to things like that, and I love to know, yeah, it's, it's cool that, like, based on how close we are to the sun, like if we were, you know, a couple miles away or a couple miles closer, life couldn't exist and all those things. It's cool, but we wouldn't know it if that didn't exist. We would just not exist. What I think is even cooler when you look at the fact that, uh, of, of, and I'm going to get these numbers wrong. I know I've said this before, and I always think I should look up these numbers to get them right, but I didn't. So, of all the livable or the space in our universe, like 2% of it is like livable, that the earth existed there, that's cool. Okay, that's cool. But then of that 2%, we could exist in like 98% of it, still be alive, but not be able to see outside of our atmosphere. We'd see absolutely nothing. To me, that's the cooler truth. Because God places us perfectly in the livable, the small amount of livable space in our universe where we get to see everything. And you get to look out and you get to see how awesome it is. His love is everywhere. But until someone comes and says, do you see that? That's because of Jesus. That's when his love becomes perfected. When they know that Jesus is the one responsible. And guess what? We get to do that. We get to be a part of that. That's what John is talking about, keeping his word. The next, next verse speaks exactly to this, verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What did Jesus make his public ministry about? Obeying all the rules? Making sure the Pharisees were pleased, happy, two thumbs up from the Pharisees? Not exactly. Matter of fact, he ticked them off a lot. I truly believe if Jesus were to walk the earth today, we would, most people would not consider him a very good Christian. Certainly, church people wouldn't because he spent a lot of time in some ugly places and with some ugly people. He was accused often of being a dirty, rotten sinner himself because he spent time with them. How many of you would celebrate with your friends if you went to a party with a bunch of drunks and, and drug addicts and, and, and crazy people? Probably not the first thing you come into church and be like, hey, guess what I got to do this weekend? Why? Because we got, we got to fit in. We got to look good. And yet Jesus, that's where, that's where he spent his time with tax collectors and sinners. Prostitutes came around him and dumped their perfume on him, and he celebrated it. 
That was not something you celebrated, walking around smelling like a prostitute. You know, that, that's how they let people know that was their line of business was the perfume, the, the expensive perfume they wore. Jesus walked around smelling like somebody who was with a prostitute, and he still celebrated her action because it was motivated by love. That's what John is talking about. Walk like he walked. Forget what the church people are complaining about and walk out love. Don't listen to the Pharisees because they'll lead you astray. Now, that does, does that mean that we don't have regulations? Does that mean that we don't? No, you should have people in your life that you can talk to, that you can dialogue with, that you can speak to, and, and you know that they'll tell you the truth. If you're straying from the word, if you're becoming more of the world than in the world, you should have people like that. I mean, if we're going to dark places, we should have accountability to know that we're not, that none of the darkness is getting in, that we're just being a light in those places. I'm not saying become part of the darkness, but man, if we don't spend any time there, we're not living like Jesus did. Jesus frequently went to dark places. He spent a lot of his ministry healing people. He spent time with broken people who desperately needed a touch from him. This week, how many people do we spend time with who desperately needed Jesus? And how many people do we spend with that already know everything? How much of our bubble did we live in this week? To walk like Jesus walks. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Jesus periodically popped into the Christian bubble. It wasn't a Christian bubble, it was the Jewish bubble. He periodically pops in. And what does he do when he does? Usually ticks somebody off when he pops into the temple because he was always motivated by love. Truth he had, and truth the Pharisees had. Man, they knew their, the Word of God inside and out. Most, most Pharisees had a majority of the first five books of the Bible memorized. They knew that stuff. But it wasn't truth and love. It was just truth. And we can get that way too when it just exists up here. Just knowing the Word of God isn't enough living it out. If we are to walk in the same way in which he walked, we will make our life about advancing the kingdom of God. It will become our number one priority because it was Jesus' number one priority. It was always all about advancing the kingdom, not advancing our own kingdoms and throwing God the scraps of our time. See, there was this commandment that some of uh, you know about the, the great commandment, and we'll, we'll get to that in just a second. But if you are reading uh, your Bible, uh, again, I'm, I'm teaching out of the ESV. Um, the heading over the next verse says, the new commandment. And verse 7 says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. The idea to share the love of God with people is not a new commandment for them. They knew that. They knew of that. There is nothing revolutionary about living out the life of Christ in the same way that Christ lived. That's what they had been doing. If you remember, 1 John is written probably somewhere later in the first century. So, Jesus has been off. Uh, he's been in heaven. He's been out of the scene now physically for a few decades uh, so this isn't something new that John's writing about. They knew that, they, that the idea, that the, the goal was to emulate the life of Jesus. So it's not a new commandment. That's the entire point of the Christian movement is to live like Jesus. 
We even refer to when Jesus himself spoke about this as the great commandment, Matthew 22, 37 to 39. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. That's the great commandment. It's to love God and love our neighbor. Many of us will stand before God one day and say, God, aren't you so happy with how I loved you? And he'll be more interested in hearing about how we loved our neighbor because that's our love for him lived out is how we love our neighbor. John makes it clear as as we'll go through here, it's kind of useless for us to say, I love God, but I hate my neighbor. It it doesn't work that way. that That can't coexist. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The commandment is old, but God is doing a new thing through that commandment. We see we now have the light of Christ shining from inside of us. Now, this is the first time in all of history that the Spirit was residing in people, that God was indwelling His people. So our ability to show the love of God is beyond anything that humanity has ever possessed. Yeah, they were always commanded to do it, but man, did they lack the power to live out this commandment. John goes on to explain how certain heart attitudes are simply not congruent. So we've been talking about this will be true of you if you know Jesus. He goes on to talk about a few things that cannot be true if we know Jesus, if we're a spirit or light-filled person, verses 9 to 11. He says, whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Hatred toward a brother or sister cannot coexist with the love of God inside us. Now, you might be really, really angry. I mean, I've seen people really, really hurt by other people. But to hate them, John is saying, it cannot coexist with the heart of God. This is why I don't understand how there can be so many feuds inside the church that in some respects the church is the worst place for personal feuds. I've never seen anything like it. Some churches are so racked with it, so filled with it, filled with hatred toward other brothers or sisters in Christ. And you might say, well, I I don't hate them. I just don't want to be in the same room as them or talk to them or or have anything to do with them. Like, listen, you can throw whatever label you want on it, but if that's how you feel about a brother or sister in Christ or part of your actual blood family, I don't know how you can say the love of Christ exists in me if you feel that way towards somebody. How we as God's people can justify holding grudges and withholding forgiveness is beyond me. I, I never can, can understand when someone, as a believer, says, I just can't forgive them. Like, I'm sorry, do you think their sin was worse than your sin against Jesus? 
Because, man, your theology is messed up if you think so. If you think you deserve someone to ask forgiveness of you more than God did, man, you've, you don't really understand Him. You don't really get the holiness of God. You need an encounter with Him, with God. You need that encounter where you sit before Him and you see the holiness and the righteousness of God and, you, and it displays for you so clearly how dirty, messed up, and rotten we are as you stand before Him and you realize, I, I am a man of unclean lips. I have, I have no right to stand before God. And we, then you'll get a little bit of an idea of how much we've been forgiven. There is, there is no, um, there's no measuring stick to measure how much we have been forgiven by God. And there is no person on the face of this planet, I don't care how heinous their crime has been, that has deserved our forgiveness more than we needed Jesus' forgiveness for ourselves. And so for us to go on hating somebody or disliking somebody or uh, just filled with evil thoughts and, and, and motives toward another person And then also saying, yes, but I'm a regenerated person and Jesus lives in my heart. It doesn't work that way, John says. It cannot. It says if you you have that hatred, then you are in the darkness. And, And he says darkness multiple times. You're in the darkness. You walk in darkness. And the darkness has blinded your eyes. And so if you're hearing that this morning and you're thinking like, yeah, but you sit in darkness. That's why you can't see Ask for an encounter with God. Ask that the light of Christ would shine on you and it would become so evident to you how the hatred in you has kept you from receiving the love of God. John goes on to address three different groups of people twice in a poetic way. So this is kind of a change up for John here uh, as he's moving along. He all of a sudden shifts to poetry. Uh, if you were with us, if you, especially if you've never done the, you register your Bible through in a year, uh, download the Bible app, the U version, and do the Bible Project Bible in a year. You'll learn so much through that journey. But one of the things that we talked about as we went through that was the different genres of writing styles. And so John switches here from how he was writing to a poetic style. Uh, and he's pretty gifted in this, and it's pretty interesting the way he does this. So verse 12 He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, is John addressing all children? No. All children's sins are not automatically forgiven. (laughs) Uh, What John is referring to, when John uses the the word little children here, uh, he's not referring to age. Uh, if, If you've ever led somebody to Christ, you might consider them your son or your daughter in Christ, your child in the faith. That's a a lot. They had a very, very family idea of the gospel in this time. And so when you led people, when, when, even as maybe their pastor, however you want to refer to John's relationship to this group of people he's writing to, he viewed them as his children. So you know me, I don't get into the Greek very often, but suffice to say, I probably wouldn't be able to pronounce the Greek word anyhow. Um, But what it refers to is not an age-based children, but a people group of saying, he's saying to this people, you are my children in the faith. And so because they're his children in the faith, he can say your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Moving on in verse 13, he says, I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you children because you know the father. 
So fathers are recognized for their knowledge, which, sorry younger people, comes with age. (laughs) It's really hard to get true knowledge without age because knowledge is helpful, but wisdom is what we're looking for. And that's, that's kind of the idea that John is getting at here. He's not just talking about head knowledge. He's talking about the word here, probably is better translated more as a knowledge-based idea, and that can only come with practice, living out our faith. Uh, Fathers can be recognized for that because they've been living out their faith. Young men are recognized because they're still in the active battle with the evil one. That's the idea John's getting at here with the young men because they're still wrestling with all of the sins. Uh, I I know some of you, uh, those of you that are older in the faith, uh, you know that it, it changes as you age. Some of the things that a 20-year-old person, uh, some of the knucklehead stuff they do, you, you don't really struggle with that anymore. Now, hopefully, as you've walked with the Lord, you feel that more of your sin has been revealed and you feel you are more in need of Him than ever, but you probably don't wrestle with like somebody cutting you off in traffic and you want to get out of the car and punch him in the face. Uh, like a 20- or 30-year-old person might do. Uh, You don't wrestle with the things of young people anymore. Uh, And John's kind of acknowledging that young men, they're still in that battle. And he's not obviously just speaking to men or fathers, but these are age groups. So young men, young women, still in that active battle with the evil one. And then children are recognized. Now, this one is age-based when he uses this word for children this time. This is speaking specifically toward younger people. Children are recognized because they see God as their father, which is just easier to do when you're a child. It's why, like in Sunday school, it's so much easier to teach a child that God is our father. They accept it so much more readily because they, they understand that father structure. To them, uh, a father is someone they look to for strength, for, for comfort, for uh, stability, and so they can easily make that connection to God. Us, we've lived long enough, most of us, that we realized our dads aren't perfect. They mess up. They get it wrong sometimes, and so it can be harder for us to relate and not put the baggage from our earthly fathers onto our godly fathers, our godly father. Verse 14, he goes through this again. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. See, fathers here are addressed the same way, exact same thing as the last time, but strength is added to the address to the young men. Now, I'm not going to spend time diving into this whole poetic style and connecting all the dots for you. If you're interested in that and dive into a uh, commentary and they will explain all of these things to you. But suffice to say, strength is added specifically to the young men here. But it's very clear that where the strength comes from that John is acknowledging is that the Word of God abides in them. He's not talking about physical strength. He's not talking about personal fortitude. He's talking about the Word of God abiding in them. That's where the strength comes from. And so often, uh, discipled a lot of young men, uh, and it can be very easy when they're struggling with, you know, a lot of times it's lust and and those kind of hormone-driven sins, anger, things like that. It's so easy to give them man-made fixes. Well, you want to stop dealing with that? Well, then you take this step, download this software, do this thing. You need Jesus. You need more of him. That's the answer. Yeah, you might want to download some software and do that 12-step program, but first, you need to spend some time with Jesus. 
You need to learn how to get to Jesus and spend time with him. That's how you develop the strength that John is talking about here. The strength of faith and dependence on God. And it's, it's such a contrary thing. We talk about it very readily and easily, but how many of you would consider yourself strong if you were constantly having to depend and rely on somebody else? We would think like, no, that's actually weakness on my part because I always need somebody else. But when it comes to Jesus, that's a strength that we lean into him and we need him for our life. So as you look at your own life, are you the genuine article Are you just trying to make it look good for the approval of men? Whether it's the approval of family, whether it's the approval of church family, whether it's the approval of fitting into some group or, or sect or denomination or whatever it is, are you genuinely driven by a heart that desperately wants to live for Christ? Or has it always been more about following the rules, checking the right boxes so that you can fit inside that box that people refer to as Christian? Is your life one of passionate devotion to Christ? Or are you trying to run back and forth between Jesus and the world, trying to fit into both? I want to fit in with my work friends and in the world and the stuff and the drinking and all that, but I also want to fit in at church. And so I try to sober up for Sunday mornings and try to make it look really good. I try to smile and try to act like everything's great in my life. Is that how we're living? Running, trying to run back and forth and getting exhausted and and experiencing the difficulties of trying to live in both worlds? Do you walk like Christ walked? Is your life one that anybody can look at, spend a day, a week examining your life and say, yep, that's somebody who lives for the kingdom of God? Or is it, well, yeah, I mean, they prayed in the morning. They read their Bible for like the first 10 minutes and didn't really see anything else there. No other evidence throughout the the day. Do we walk like the world? Does our life look Hand-in-hand, similar to the world. Is it about drive? Is it about success? Is it about monetary gain? Is it about, you know, everything looking perfect and, 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 and the pride of life? Or are we willing to give all that up to serve Jesus, honor Him, and advance His kingdom? Because at the end of this life, the answer to that question of whether we walk like Christ or the world, it's going to be the only thing that will matter. As we stand before Jesus, I promise you the car you drove won't matter in that moment. Promise you the school your kids went to won't matter in that moment. The size of your house, how great everything looked, your approval on the church board, whatever you serve on, it's not going to matter. It's going to matter is did we advance his kingdom? Was that our priority? Did we live a life of passionate devotion to him? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much. God, each and every one of us, we get this wrong so often. And I thank you, Lord, that you're not sitting in heaven in front of the book of life and every time we make a mistake, erasing our name and then when we repent, you write it back in. And I thank you, Lord, that that's not the process. Thank you that when we received you as Savior, that was it. You accepted us, knowing the past and the present, all of it was all one for you. When we asked your forgiveness 
It was a whole deal. And now we don't live to earn anything. We get to live because of the love we have experienced. Lord, would you help us to clarify that in, in, in our hearts and our minds, that our life would reflect how much we have been forgiven. Our life would reflect how much you have done in us and how much we have because of you. We wouldn't have to defend how we spend our time with you. We wouldn't have to defend how we spend our finances and how we live our life before you, but we would stand before you and thank you for the opportunity one day. Thank you for the opportunity to serve you and to be your agent of change in this world that we got to live out the gospel in dark places. Thank you that you sent us to people who were in desperate need of you with a very easy task of just letting them know what you've done in our life. Thank you, Jesus, that you've placed us in Dubois and you've given us an opportunity to tell others of your love. And I pray this week we would walk like Christ and live a life like you lived. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Have a great week.